We are in the book of Romans chapter 1, and we are coming to actually at the very end of our series on the solas, the five solas. Now, I know that many of you have never, ever heard of the solas before. And I know some of you have been here over the past few weeks, and you've heard about these different solas. But allow me to explain just for a moment where these came from and why they're important to us today. In um, October of 1517, there was a young monk by the name of Martin Luther in Wittenberg, Germany, who had a zeal for God. I mean, he was zealous. He loved God. He wanted to do what God wanted him to do. But he noticed that something was happening within the greater church that disturbed him, that seemed to contradict what God had clearly laid out within the Bible. And as he interacted with different people, he saw what he felt people were being abused by leaders within the church, by, uh, or, and being not only abused, but manipulated for different things. And they were using, people were using God to line their own pockets. And this bothered Martin Luther so much that he wanted to debate or reform these abuses or um, manipulations that he saw going on. And he wrote them all down, uh, each one of them, and he wanted to debate it. And it w- at the time, the church, especially within Western Europe, was the center of a community. And so what they would do when people would want notices for things, they would nail them to the door of the church. And so what Luther wanted to do was he wanted to debate these different things with, these schol- with other scholars, educated people at the time. So he wrote in Latin these, what became known as the 95 theses, 95 points that he had put together. Seems like a lot to us. We have a hard time paying attention past three points. And this guy had 95 of them. And he wanted to debate. He wanted to talk. He wanted to to use this to speak to other people. He didn't write in the language of the people, which was German. He wasn't trying to create uh, a reformation per se, but he wanted to reform within the church itself. And so he nails this theses to the door, and many of the educated saw it, and were so struck because what he did was call out these manipulative and abusive leaders for manipulating the Word of God to their own benefit and own profit. And he was so frustrated, people were so like, this is scandalous what you're doing right now. So they translated it into German, and it ended up going all over Germany and then spread to all over Europe. Well, of course, the authorities don't want to get called out for this. So they demand Martin Luther come to this place called the Diet of Worms. Okay, it's not a Diet of Worms, but what it means, it's like a council at Worms, Germany. It was a place that was the name of it. And so they brought Martin Luther in. They brought all of his writings, and and years had gone by since he'd nailed those 95 theses to the door, and he'd written all of these things about the Word of God. And they brought it before him, and they said, Is this your writing? He said, Yes, it is. They said, you need to recant of this, or basically we're going to kick you out of the church, and which means you can't have salvation. You can't have a relationship with God. We, we have the power to send you to hell. Do you recant of this? And he goes, well, we have a problem. He said, you have councils, you have popes, and they've contradicted one another. And I am just going with what the Word of God says. And he says, I cannot recant them, turn away from them, But my conscience is held captive by the word of God. Here I stand, so help me. And then a death warrant went on his life and people were trying to kill him because of his stance for the Bible and all that it said. And it was a purifying moment. 
where people were called out of these abuses and manipulations to the truth of the Word of God, and all of the truth that came out of that became five rallying cries for the church that have transcended time into our own time and era today. Now, over the past several weeks, you've heard four of these. You heard Solus Christus from Timbadal last week. And that really, in Latin, that means Christ alone. That Christ alone is the one through whom we are saved. You heard about sola gracia, which means grace alone. That it's only through the very grace of God, God's gift to us, that we can be saved. You heard sola scriptura, which means the Bible alone. It's through the Word of God, not any tradition, not anything in our culture, not anything that we were taught by family members or anything else, but it's the Word of God alone that we have the revelation of who God is. And then you heard also sola deo gloria. It's the reason why God does stuff. Why did God bring about our salvation, and why does He do what He does for the glory of His name that He might be made known all over the world. Now we've actually come to what many call the first sola, the most controversial of the solas, the one that caused a wedge to be, uh, I mean, drove a wedge within Christianity to show this is the most important of doctrines. This is the doctrine, this teaching that is contained within Romans 1, verses 16 through 17, changed the life of this monk named Martin Luther, and it's the understanding of faith alone. Now, what does it mean, faith alone? What does that refer to? It means that we, by our faith in Christ, are saved, not by any deeds that we have done, that we are resting in what God has done. See, one part of the faith says this is what you do to be saved. And this one says you are actively trying to achieve something in the sight of God, to become righteous in God's sight. Whereas Martin Luther read this and something dawned on him where it said, no, 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 it's not in achieving righteousness, achieving righteousness in God's sight. It is passively receiving what God has done through Christ for me. That's faith. And today we're going to explore what that means because what it really ultimately comes down to is this question. It answers this question. How does one become right with a holy God? How does one become right with a holy God? That's what this text answers today. And we're going to explore it. We're going to play with it. We're going to see it in a different dynamic than possibly if you've grown up with this, have seen it before. If you come from a different cultural background, we're going, my hope is, is to see it from a cultural perspective that you are familiar with. It is different than the American perspective that so much have grown up with. But we're going to see it through like a diamond, showing it through the different facets of light, of culture and time, to see the truth of who, this, who God is that comes down into our day and in our era now. But before we go any further, I want to pray and ask God, by His Spirit, to bless and speak to us as we open His Word to see what He has for us. Let's take a moment to pray. Holy God, we come into Your presence, knowing that this doctrine created a wedge It was a stone's throw in the pond of Christianity that has rippled throughout all time, 
transforming countless individuals, men and women, from so many cultures, languages, people groups, and times. And it reverberates to our day. And as that wave of the Reformation comes over us, may we experience the truth of who you are and what this doctrine means in all of its fullness, not as a simple academic exercise, but a living truth that transforms every aspect of how we live, how we understand ourselves, and how we go about our lives, both now and in eternity. So speak to us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So we start off in this passage where Paul is writing to the Romans. And there's something about this passage that I'd never seen before. It's amazing to me how God works, that you can read a passage for years and years and years, and then suddenly, as you're going through one particular struggle or trial within your life, God, by His Holy Spirit, brings out something that you read a hundred times to apply to your life in a way that you never saw before. I went to a conference two weeks ago called the Honor Shame Conference. It was an inaugural conference at Wheaton College, and the people who attended were from all over the world. They had no idea when they put this conference together how many people would come. They thought maybe five or ten. It ended up being almost 300. They had actually cut off how many people were coming. And it was looking at the the scripture through the lens of honor shame. Now, in our Western culture, we don't talk about shame and honor that much. We have it but it's not there that much as it is within other cultures. Uh, So many of you come from an Asian culture, perhaps an African culture. There's an element of honor and shame status that is prevalent within your culture that we in our individual society do not understand very well. And we have to understand the the lens and, and the world that the New Testament was written. And it was very much a culture that was about honor and shame. It's a big deal huge deal. Matter of fact, some have said that 60% of the world has honor shame as their life operating system. Matter of fact, 90% of those who have yet to hear the name of Christ live under the operating system of honor and shame. Now, I want to talk a moment. What does it mean to be shamed? And what does Paul say? Because Paul starts off in verse 17, and he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Shame is not something that our culture understands very well. The Greek word for ashamed, remember the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. So this word ashamed means disgraced or humiliated. It's the picture of being singled out because of a misplaced confidence or support. Ultimately, it is dishonor and refers to being disgraced, bringing on fitting shame that matches the error of wrongly identifying with something. Um, And it's something that's making a comeback in our society. For example, uh, with our social media world, if someone goes outside of the bounds, which is normally uh, expected of someone, we shame them, and people go after them online. They'll make comments. They'll, they'll make all these things about them on Twitter or on Instagram or whatever. They, they put them up there because they want to shame them. And people are experiencing this. It's, it's rising in American society where we're seeing shame making a huge comeback. But what is it? It's the feeling that comes with being exposed 
to one's social network, and I'm not talking about online network, I'm talking about the social world in which we live in everything, online and personally, for violating the norms that the group holds valuable. Let me say that again. Shame is the feeling that comes with being exposed to one's social network for violating the norms that the group holds valuable. Sociologists are saying this is becoming so prevalent right now. And let me give you an idea. Let me take it out of the academic and get personal here for a moment. Uh, when, I was in, when I was in middle school, uh, and middle schoolers are probably more in tune with shame and honor than anybody. Seriously, okay? When I was a teenager, um, there was a, a thing called stonewashed jeans. Anybody remember stonewashed jeans that were around back in the day? Okay, stonewashed jeans, right? And you, if you were cool, you wore stonewashed jeans. But there was another type of jean that was coming out at that time called acid-washed. Now, when I was, when I was in middle school, I, everyone wanted to wear stonewashed jeans. Well, my mother went to the store for me and bought me a pair of pants, a pair of jeans. And they were acid-washed. Now, I didn't know anybody that acid-washed yet. Acid-washed hadn't gotten popular yet. So suddenly, she's like, here's the jeans that you asked for. I went, Mom, I needed stone-washed, not acid-washed. I can't wear these to school because everybody's going to laugh at me. I'm going to stick out. I violated the norms that everyone held dear. I'm not going to be popular. I'm not going to be cool. I'm going to look like an idiot. And so I yelled at my mother for buying me these jeans because what it was, I was afraid if I wore them, I would experience Shame. Now, that's in a small way. And we've all experienced this. Matter of fact, I would say that most of what we do in all of our societies and all of our cultures is on the basis of whether or not we receive shame or honor. The house we buy, the job we have, the clothes we wear, the car we drive, the restaurants we go to, the places we shop, the cell phones that we have, the computers we use, all of these things, and we somehow form our identity around them and how other people are going to perceive us. Okay? And so we don't want to stick out. We don't want to be called out. We don't want to be shown for our behavior. We, I mean, that's why the Ashley Madison scandal, if you remember that just a few years ago, where these people would go online and they were promised a discreet affair where they could have an affair, just have basically sex with no strings with other people. And it was anonymous. And then all of the anonymous people that signed up were released and to the entire world. And people were shamed. Some people lost their jobs. Some people committed suicide because they couldn't face the shame of being exposed. And now many of those online are saying it's just a matter of time for every website you've visited, every text that you've ever done, every photo you've ever taken that you thought was deleted will be exposed. Now you get an idea. How would you feel? Shame. Be ashamed. You don't want everybody to know. It's the exposure of one's social network, in essence. Now, when Paul says, for I am not ashamed, that's a big deal. And it's a really huge deal when you understand the world in which Paul found himself. Let me give you a brief bio of Paul here for a moment. Paul was a Jew of the Jews. He was the Tom Brady, the Michael Jordan of Judaism. He, was, he went to a force, best, I mean, one of the best schools, started under one of the best teachers, he was so zealous in his pursuit of Judaism that he, um, he became a Pharisee, which was the cream of the crop. And he was honored by other Pharisees. I mean, it's one thing to be honored. It's, like, it's one thing to be a professional athlete or a great singer. It's another thing to be recognized by other athletes to be the best athlete or by other singers to be the best singer. And Paul is recognized to be the best of the best among us. 
He is the cream of the crop. He is the most knowledgeable, the most zealous. His zeal was so great that he would even go to other towns to persecute the church of God. He went on the, like the anti-mission trip. Instead of to share things, it was to tear it down. And people would be like, wow, that Paul, man, he's dedicated so much that he's willing to root out these sects of people called the followers of the way. Because remember, when Christianity started off, it was considered to be a sect of Judaism. Not a whole separate religion. And so Paul comes along, and he is the dedicated of the dedicated. And he was also a Roman citizen to boot. So he had respect in many Romans and of Jews and highest esteem of Jews. So much they would honor him when he walked in the room. When I, when I go, I, I, I get an opportunity to travel to different countries uh, every so often and interact with different cultures. And I was teaching at a seminary in India, and I walked in the room, and all of the students stood up. And in my culture, it's like, whoa, hey, chill, just sit. <laughs> okay, I'm not that big a deal. Um, but in their culture, it's different because I learned something, that if a person is born into a, a place of shame, and many people see poverty or lack of education as shame, the only way out of that culture is education. And the person you honor is the teacher because they have the keys to education. And not only do I have the keys to education, but I'm a religious teacher, so I get double honor because I can help elevate them up. So they want to honor me and treat me that way. And so we see Paul getting this type of honor. I mean, they're, they're standing in front of him, Paul, here, you get this. You're Paul, you're the, you're the man, Paul. So he's honored of the honored. But Paul has something change in his life. Paul is actually going to persecute uh, a church on the road to Damascus. He's got his guys with him. Uh, they're zealous, they're feeling good. They've taken out some churches. They're doing a great thing for God in their mind. When Jesus appears to Paul in a vision. And he says, Paul, or he says Saul, because his name was Saul at the time. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul like, can't see, it's so blinding. He's like, who are you, Lord? Come on, I'll stop it. Tell me who you are. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And that was like a big deal to Saul. Wait a minute. You're, whoa, you're, you're the one that... He hears his voice, then he goes blind. And the people around him, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't see it like he did. And he's blinded for three days, and he ends up going to a village and uh, goes into the town, and uh, Simon of Tanner goes and lays hands on him, and he says, receive your sight, and he sees his sight. And then Paul goes on a brand-new trajectory. And so what he once did, he had a great reputation, status, honor among the community. Now he is going against everything that the community held dear. He has now become the antithesis, the opposite, the enemy of what they held dear now. And he's become zealous, you know, uh, proponent, leader within the Christian community that he was once persecuting. And now he has brought shame on all of the Jews. And they want to take Paul out. He brought shame. He's brought disgrace to us. Now, some of you are from cultures that you know exactly what I'm talking about. Matter of fact, in certain parts of Asia, there's an expression. The nail that sticks out gets the hammer. If you stick out, if you bring shame to our community, our duty is to kill you. You see this, actually, within several different cultures. You even see it, in, it happening in the United States of America, where it was recently a 16-year-old girl had her head cut off by her brother because she was dating an infidel. And he had to bring honor back to the community. It's called an honor killing. 
And people will do anything to get honor back into their community because that's what they have. And our culture doesn't understand this. And for, for Paul's time, I mean, they came after Paul. They came to persecute him. They whipped him. They threw stones at him. They dragged him out of towns. Other people mocked him. I mean, not only was Paul once this great uh, just leader within Judaism, and now he's turned against what they felt they held dear to become a very spokesperson of the group that they hated. So he brought shame on the community. And he deserves death in many of their minds. And then Paul can write to the church at Rome and says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And see, something happens. As we understand this faith alone, and I'm going to go through these points rather quickly, we have to understand several different things. First of all, faith alone, what it means is a removal of our shame. He removes our shame from us. So we have to understand how bad we really were. And Paul, he thought he was zealous, but the reality was is he was operating out of foolishness. He was blinded. And here he's, Paul is saying, no, 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 for the gospel of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God, the good news of Jesus, for it is the power, the very dynamite of God through whom we have salvation. It changes things. It removes my shame. I'm not ashamed of it, even though you think I should be. The reality is, is that you should be shamed. Because you've persecuted the very person of Jesus Christ. And at the end of time, if you do not turn to him now and realize that he has taken your shame upon himself, that you will spend eternity in all of your shame, in all of your humiliation, and it will never, ever let up. And so as Paul is saying here, faith alone, it refers to my belief in what God has done. And God has removed my shame that's why he says here, it is the power of God to, for salvation to who? Everyone. First, he says to everyone. To everyone. He changes it. See, we don't understand what it's like, shame. We don't get it in our culture. Let me ex- ex- tell you something for a moment. And I know for those who come from India, you will understand this implicitly. But in India, there is what is known as the caste system. And there are four primary castes with all these different subcasts in between. And there is one caste that's not even mentioned in the four. It's so bad. And at the top of the list are the Brahmin class. These are the priests and the teachers. These are the highly esteemed. And they're born into this. And after the, the Brahmins goes to the, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong so my Hindi speakers can correct me. Kshatriyas? Kshatriya. Kshatriyas are next. They're the warriors and the rulers. The next cast down are the Vishas, Vashas, whatever they said, <laughs> who are the farmers, traders, and merchants, followed by the lowest cast, which is the Shudras, which are the laborers. But in actuality, there's a fifth and lowest cast, which is the untouchables, called the Dalits. Dalits. Now, these people are the street cleaners and the latrine I mean, street sweepers and latrine cleaners. These people are so bad that people will walk around not to touch them, to be around them. And I remember hearing a story at this conference that I was just at where they said that there was a church where there was a, a man who was of a higher caste, but the church was filled with Dalits, the lowest caste. But this man had become friends with a Brahmin of the highest caste. And the Brahmins are the hardest group because they don't feel like they need it. They're at the top of the food chain. They have all the social status they want. Why would they want to be identified with this lowly Christian group? But the Dalits, who have no status, are elevated up. No, so so they're, they're coming to Christ in droves. So this Brahmin 
shows up to the church, and this man had been working with him, but he didn't know that the church was filled with Dalits. And so he's interacting with the Dalits that are there. And after the church service, the pastor gets done, and he goes up to his friend, and he'd been sharing about Jesus, and the man was curious to know about Jesus. And he said, what did you think? It seemed like a great moving of the service. And he says, you know, um, if I come to church, well, he, he said, I want to know about Jesus, but I'm so unclean by touching all these Dalits. If I come to church, do I have to touch them all? See, we don't get it in our culture. We don't have that in our culture. Everyone is of equality. We don't have people borning in, born into that status where they're so untouchable. And we think you can get out. You can get education. You can, you can do whatever you want to do in the United States of America. And it's true to a point. But in this culture, there's not an opportunity to get out per se. There's no one that went before you in education. There's not necessarily student loans for you to partake of. You've never heard of it. You don't have the benefit oftentimes of public education. And this happens in so many different parts of the world. And so they're taught that they're to stay in that. They're born in it. And they're going to stay in it for the rest of their lives. And they shouldn't even try to get out. And it's the state of shame that they're perpetually in. They're unclean. And you know, that's what the Bible says that we all were. We were born as Dalits. We were born in a state of shame. Problem is, is we think we're all that. We think we're pretty good. We have to understand how bad we were and are before God. That we're unclean. And he came, though, to remove our shame, to take our shame upon himself. See, that's the amazing thing of the power of the gospel of God. See, in a shame culture, the only way out of shame is if someone in an honorable position can lift you up. And let me tell you, Jesus is exalted higher than any position. That he is exalted to the very right hand of God, the supremest, most place of honor, where he's sitting down, indicated that it is a finished work. And then he invites us to share in his honor and he, because he took, and he wants us to recognize that he took our shame. And we are saved not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done and trusting in that. That's what it means. I'm not saved by any work of my own. I'm saved by the work that he did. And I'm resting in that and realize he took my shame, my sin, my suffering upon himself. And at the cross, he became sin and shamed. And he was experiencing my shame, everything about who I am and all of my disgustingness. He took it upon himself and then he gave us his righteousness. We have to understand that. See, he removes our shame, but now we have access to a new power. We have a new power. See, this is the power to change. This is the power. You're not stuck in that status any longer. You don't have to keep doing that sin that you did before. You can resist it. You can fight it. See, when you continue on in your sin, you're saying that Christ's death meant nothing. When you continue on in sinning and you know what's wrong and doing it, you're saying Jesus' death meant absolutely nothing. But in his death was where God rocked the whole universe in one moment in time. And showed the power of the gospel. And when he died, I mean, it was just a good man dying. But it was resurrection from the dead that changed it. And it's that same spirit that rose him from the dead that God gives to you to help you become like Christ. That you can say now no to sin. You're a new creation. A new person in Jesus. That you're not imprisoned to your old way of life. You have a new way of thinking. A new way of acting. That you're not imprisoned by what other people say about you any longer. People want to keep you in place. But the gospel frees us, gives us a new power. And that's why Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
every single one, without exception, to those who believe. See, he gives you and elevates you to a new position. Everyone who believes can be a part of this. Rich, poor, no matter what culture you're from, no matter what your background is, no matter how, no matter how much education you have or don't have, no matter where you've been or what you've gone through, whether you've been immoral or moral, the cross levels everything and brings us all to himself. And it says that everyone has salvation in the same way. And it's through those who believe. That's your faith alone. And it's an active word that's there. It's through a belief in Christ. You have a new position in the sight of God that you are now considered to be his son and his daughter. You're no longer an American. You're no longer a Congolese. You're no longer, you're no longer a Cuban or a Puerto Rican or a Mexican. Now you are called by the name of Christian. That is the name that predominates. That is the name that is greater. And all colors are removed. Languages are removed. Status is removed. And we all become recipients of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ because at the cross, he leveled everything. So we have a new position. And that, again, comes by faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, that now I am different because of what Jesus has done, and I believe that, and that changes. We have a power position, and now we've been brought into God's plan. Plan. Later in Roman, Paul brings this out, but he says, God's plan was to work through the Jews to bring about the coming of the Messiah, and so they were the ones that are the initial beneficiaries, but you who are Gentiles, who are outsiders, who now have been brought into the very family of God, you've been adopted into his family, and now you have all the rights and privileges that come with this adoption. So because of Jesus, we have a new power, we have a new position, and we become, have been brought into God's awesome plan. But notice verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The, in it is referring to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he lived, he died on the cross for our sins, he was buried, he rose again on the third day. It, and this says here, the righteousness of God, it's actually better translated righteousness from God. It's not righteousness God, like God's righteousness, it's a God righteousness that he gives to us. And there's a massive difference between the two. See, the righteousness of God is a major theme appearing over 30 times in one form of another. Now, what is Righteousness. It is the state or condition of perfectly conforming to God's perfect law and holy character. Righteousness is the state or condition of perfectly conforming to God's perfect law and holy character. See, God requires us to be perfectly righteous, but the problem is we cannot. It's impossible in our sin. Only Jesus was truly righteous. Only he could identify with us. So how do we get right with God? See, faith alone refers to the righteousness we have from the Savior. See, Jesus gives us his righteousness. He gives us that right standing in the sight of God. And we see this drawn out through the gospel, and I'm going to pull this out in three different ways here. First of all, we have to understand he came to identify with us. In other words, he stood with us. He identified with us. He stood with us. That's letter A within your notes there. He stood with us. See, that's why Jesus came to John the Baptist, and John went, whoa, 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 whoa. How am I to baptize you? You're more honored than I am. How can you, who are more honored than I am, be baptized by me? I have less honor. And Jesus is saying, 
Let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, let me show that I am taking my place with the dishonored so that God would receive honor. See, I'm identifying with sinful men. He had to identify with us. That's why when he's being tempted in the wilderness and the devil comes to him and says, command these stones to be made bread. You can do that. Jesus says, men shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. See, he could have done that. He could have called angels to keep him from touching the rock, jumping off the pinnacle of the temple and keep him from hitting ground zero. He could have done all of that, but we couldn't. And if he would have done that, then he wouldn't have been able to identify with us. Everything that he did was to identify with us in the reality and the wholeness of our condition. And every part of who we are, that's the depth of love right there. That's amazing. So we see that he stood with us. And then what's most amazing is not only he identified with us, that identification is supremely seen on the cross when he swapped roles with us. He swapped places with us. See, the cross was what was meant for us. That's what our sin deserved. It was for you and for me. He died our death. He was shamed publicly like we deserved. God had the full he had the full power and the right to expose us publicly for all of our sin. And instead, Christ took our place and he became sin, became our shame. And then what he did was he supplied us with his righteousness. See, if we're to look at life as a ledger, and here's our good deeds and here's our bad deeds, we've got nothing here over here. No, no matter how good we do, the Bible says that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. And it's interesting, the translation there, and it's not brought out in English, by the way. What it really means is dirty menstrual garments. For all of our righteousness is like dirty menstrual garments in the sight of God. That's what it literally is in the Hebrew. It says even what we think is good in the sight of God, we got nothing, no credit, nothing. We have nothing but bad here. But see, Jesus' ledger was the exact opposite. He had all good and no bad. And so what he did was, is on the cross, he gives us his righteousness and he takes our bad. That's what we deserve. He swapped places with us. And then he gave us, he supplied us. Let's let her see in your notes. He supplied us with his righteousness. Now look at verse 17 with me for a moment. For in it, the righteousness of God, righteousness from God, is revealed from faith for faith. It's a funny expression, from faith for faith. I've read that, I don't know how many times in my life, and it always seemed to kind of trip me up, like it was some tongue twister, like Peter Piper picked a peck of pe- you know, pickled peppers, whatever that was. From faith to faith, what is this? From faith to faith, I don't, I don't, from faith for faith, what is this for faith for faith? And then the righteous shall live by faith. Well, that I get. In actuality, the for faith, uh, from faith for faith, is actually a synonym of righteous living by faith. And he's saying here that faith alone reveals the reality of our salvation. It reveals the reality of our salvation. That's what he's saying here. See, the word here for the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes in verse 16, the word believes in Greek means to trust, rely on, or have faith in. When used of uh, 
salvation, the word occurs in the present tense, is believing. Not just believed, believing, which stresses that faith is not simply a one-time event, but on an ongoing condition. In other words, faith is seen as active. It's active. If you think you're barely going to church, giving occasionally, simply doing good reveals your faith, you have another thing coming. So we have to get over this ridiculous notion that you pray a prayer and there's never any fruit and that they are saved. Salvation is both an event and a process, and you can't have one without the other. When we regulate it to a prayer, we remove the process. And when we focus on the process and not the event, it becomes work salvation. That is something what we tell ourselves to make our seals feel better when a person dies. I've seen so many people, did this person know Jesus? Well, they prayed at camp when they were in seventh grade, but they led a completely pagan life since then, and so they're in heaven. No, they're not. Well, they had faith. It was faith alone, right, if they believed it. But their belief is seen as active, and it transforms into life. That reveals the reality of the faith they express. That's what one's life does. It doesn't justify or declare that faith righteous. What it's saying is, is that this faith is real as it's being played out in life. So this reality of our salvation, we have to understand that our faith has to be or is seen as active. And it has to be all-encompassing. See, faith involves every single part of who we are. And there's three parts to faith. Tom, can you grab that chair for me? I want to I show you this and demonstrate this for you. This is what faith actually has three parts. When I say it's all-encompassing, thank you. <clears throat> now, here's the first part of this chair. I mentally understand there's a mental part to faith, right? That's the first part of faith. First level is mental. I mentally understand through experience that this chair can support my weight. It's made of steel. It's made of fabric. Um, my experience has been, is that I've seen these chairs before, I believe mentally that it can support my weight. It has four legs. It's not going to fall over. I have a mental understanding of this chair. All right? Now, I have to have a reason to sit in this chair. Now, I'm tired. I've been standing. I've been preaching. This is my second service. been on my feet all morning long. My feet are tired. I'd like to sit down. I'm emotionally there. That's the second part of it. I need to sit down, and this chair can support my weight. But there's the last part of faith. This is the part many of us forget. It's volitional. And what that means is intentionally choose, willingly. So now I mentally believe it, I emotionally feel it, and now I need to exercise it. See, that's what faith is. Faith has a mental part. It has an emotional part. And it has a volitional, an action part to it. It is all-encompassing. It affects all of who we are. And the reality of our salvation, last of all, is seen in our authentic obedience. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If you say that you have faith in Jesus, you say, I love Jesus, but you don't do what he says, then you don't love Jesus. Jesus said very clearly that if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And this is love in 1 John that we walk in obedience to his commandments. If you say you have faith and it's not shown in your life, then you're really not right. You're not one of those who has received righteousness by faith. If you have received righteousness by faith, then your life will reflect it. That's the reality of our salvation. It is seen in authentic obedience, which means ready to do whatever Jesus tells us to do as people of God, and let me, let me translate it for you. Let me bring it down. As husbands, as wives, as employers, as employees, as neighbors, as classmates, as family, 
as friends. Your faith, you are to be obedient, and, and it should permeate every single relationship that you have, which means you forgive others when they wrong you, which means you sacrifice yourself, which means if you're a husband, you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church, which means if you're a wife, you're submitting to your husband as you'd be submitting to Christ, which it means children, you are living in obedience to your parents. There's this idea that it permeates every aspect of our being. And we ask ourselves, why do people turn away from the gospel of Jesus? It's because we haven't shown them the reality that faith has to be expressed in totality of our everyday life. We've made it into this one thing where we come in, praise, have a great experience, go off and do whatever we want to do. And that is demonic. It is. Because remember, the demons of hell have a great doctrine. They know. It says even the, de- the, the demons believe and shudder. The reality is, if we, if we believe that we're saved by faith alone, then it releases us from works. Not that we try to earn God's favor, but enables us to release to work. Not to earn God's favor, but to live because of a relationship of love to Him. Faith alone. It changed the life of Martin Luther. It changed the, the life of a man named John Wesley. It's changed the lives of so many countless men and women of God across all cultures, all languages, all skin colors, all backgrounds, all educational levels, all economic levels. The gospel transforms. That's what faith alone means. Now let me ask you this. We are saved by faith alone. But on the basis of your faith, would you say that you are saved? Have you trusted in Christ what he has done? Or are you trying to earn God's favor by what you can do? That's what it comes down to. Someone once said that the gospel is this, is that uh, you are more loved and accepted than you have ever known because of what Christ has done. Do you realize that? How great he loves you. How much he cares for you. And then he says, you don't have to earn your way to me. You have to trust in what I've already done. You have to accept Jesus' shame on the cross for you. And if you don't, if you can't humble yourself and abandon your own self-righteousness and accept his righteousness, then you are going to be left with your righteousness and your shame when you come before me. And that will be greater than any social media scandal that will ever come out because all of what you have done will be revealed to the entirety of the universe across every time, group, tribe, language, and it will be seen for all it is. You will be exposed in all of your shame and you will feel it forever. Forever. It will never let up. There will be never relief. That's the greatest torture. We talk about the physical torture, but it's the anguish of being removed from God and that relationship with him that you could have had had you abandoned your own self-righteousness and received his righteousness and lived in light of that fact by faith. Let's close our message time with a word of prayer. And if you need to do business with God right now as we pray, I would encourage you to. That you need to repent of your sins, you need to turn away from it. Or if you need to embrace and receive him as Lord and Savior of your life, the scripture is very clear that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth, 
Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, your shame will be taken away, and you will live in a righteous, honorable state before him forever and ever.